You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 83 for April 27th, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the differences between large and small CRM firms. What does that mean? Does it matter? Do large CRM firms even exist anymore? So, go look at the list of CRM professionals at your local SHPO because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Sonia in Utah. Hello. Stephen in Calgary. Hi. And Bill in Arizona. Howdy. So Chris couldn't join us today, and uh, uh, Doug couldn't join us today, which means our outro will be um, succinct. So anyway, they will be missed, but they did leave some comments, uh, and we'll get to that later. So we're going to split this show up into three segments like we usually do. And in this first segment, we're going to define what small firms and large firms and all the different sizes of CRM firms that you could have, and and not even CRM firms, environmental firms, um, that you can have. And partly so we can define these terms for the following segments, and also so you know, new people in the business can understand exactly how complicated this business really is. It's not just the difference between a small firm and a large firm. There is a, a sliding scale of everything in between, and sometimes it's difficult. Just like evolution of species, if you look, <laughs> if you look at the def- the the you know one species doing small incremental changes into the next, it's difficult to actually see that. Um, and, and that can be the same thing with you know a, a small firm may not even realize they became a large firm or that they became a medium sized firm or something like that. It could just happen, and then. I think personally, we'll get into this though. In, in those cases, when they're not proactively deciding how big they want to be, um, that can lead to huge problems from a management standpoint because you end up with people in leadership positions that didn't expect to be and don't want to be and don't know how to do it and and things like that. So, but let's we, we'll get into that. Um, I want to start this off with a, a little bit of history. A lot of CRM firms uh, seem to have started. When you look at all of their, you talk to people and you look at you look at uh, you know company profiles and things like that. A lot of these started in the in the 70s, usually in the mid to late 70s and early 80s, when the university systems were starting to finally realize that hey, NHPA, the National Historic Preservation Act, means that we can kind of start doing this uh, and make some money on it. Um, in fact, my thesis was done on a project that grad students had done back in the 70s in Georgia. They uh, it was one of the first reservoir projects. They were about to make this huge reservoir. And I think something like 30 or 40 PhDs were given out based on this one reservoir. They just, everybody chose a project and they did it and then didn't do anything else with it. So, but that was the thing, you know, you get your PhD or you get your master's degree and you start a company. And a lot of times these were just, you know, friends, one person or two or three people that decided to, you know, hey, we can make a little money doing this and we can keep doing archaeology and let's just get it going. And and this happened all across the country. I think one of the big starts and pushes to this just from the research I've done was California. Um, a lot of people over here from the, the UC Davis and Sonoma State people were um, were starting their, their small firms, which are still, a lot of them are still in existence today, whether they're still small or, or they've become larger firms. Um, you know, that's a, that's a difference. So, but so, when we say small firm, we are talking about something that could just be one person that maybe always works alone or uh, hires people as they need. That's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, although, like I said, this definition is somewhat on a sliding scale because uh, I've been one person most of the time I've been in business. However, last year I had, uh, uh, for one project, I think I had nine employees altogether. And then for the next project, I had like eight employees. And then there's, uh, you know, so so what did I consider myself then? Well, I still pretty much from a from just a business standpoint, I considered myself a large firm. I mean, a small firm. So and just from just from a, a, a technical standpoint too, like like how did we operate? How did we think? How did we do things? It was all very sort of small firm uh, attitude. Sonia, I want to throw this to you because you've worked for um, some larger firms, and then you're bringing up something good in the Skype chat that we can have a an actual legal definition, which we can talk about how much I think that's BS for archaeology. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know what? What would you consider your firm right now? And and like, how many employees do you have? And where where do you where do you see how you fit in this spectrum? Well, I've got. Uh, I consider myself a small firm. Uh, Desert West Environmental is it has uh, two full-time and one part-time regular employee. 
Mm-hmm. And then we have probably eight or 10 on-call field technicians, plus a whole slew now of, of additional on-call technicians that we can call on um, as needed, which is fantastic. Um, but the, the, the biggest thing for me is, um, is, is basically revenue. Like how much money do you need to pull in to be considered a small, medium, or a large firm. Mm-hmm. I've worked for companies like A&E firms that are multi-billion dollar a year firms, but they're architecture and engineering firms. They're not just cultural resources or natural resources. So, um, though, But those are considered large firms. Then there's your medium-sized firms, and uh, those are mostly just cultural and natural together, but they make several million dollars a year. And by several, I mean tens of millions of dollars a year. Right. Um, and then, of course, your smaller firms like me who can make anything from 500000 200000 to, well, up to the federal standard, which is like somewhere around $15 million. Mm-hmm. You're considered a small business if you make up to f- like 15 or $14 million a year, which, <laughs> in my humble opinion, is crap. <laughs> That's, that makes you a hell of a lot bigger than you, you really are. Well, and that's that's one of the that's one of the things I wanted to mention when you put that in the Skype chat because, you know, from a federal contracting standpoint, um, I see that you're right. I see that all the time. I, I think I've seen up to twenty million as well uh, on mm-hmm. different contracts. And, it varies. Yeah, and I think at fifteen million. Well, maybe like nine million was the lowest I've seen. But anyway, either way, that still covers like probably ninety percent of the people that do CRM in this in this in this mm-hmm. in this country, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just the standards for what a small business is in archaeology versus what apparently the government thinks a small business is. It just it really changes things because when they say a contract is a small business set aside, it doesn't help the people like you and me because nearly every CRM firm can still bid on that. It's just mm-hmm. the the larger engineering firms that probably can't bid on that, but you know, almost everybody else can. And it just, it, it makes it a little bit unfair, I think. I mean, when, you're, when your business starts opening offices in multiple states and you have tons of offices and, yeah, so, and yeah. you're getting, shush. <laughs> 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 yeah, just one and a half other offices. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Keep going. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it just, it, it You start pulling in a lot more. Um, I mean, the largest project that I ever worked on, and this was not for my own firm, this for what I would consider a medium to large size cultural and natural resources company, was like $7 million. And that was out of one office. $7 million over the course of a couple of years is literally like 45 people in the field solid for a year to a year and a half, plus another year to a year and a half of report writing and laboratory work. That's a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, and that's out of one office or one and a half offices. Um, and then, I mean, and 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 that particular firm um, had, I, I think, at that time, maybe ten or more offices. So I would consider that a large company or a medi- at least a medium to large company. They're not pulling billions of dollars of of, of revenue in a year, but um, I would consider it large. Yeah, indeed. Um, and, and one thing Stephen mentioned in the back chat here was, um, you know, he thinks about CRM, uh, the size of a CRM firm in terms of staffing and not revenue. And I think that's what a lot of us, I think that's a lot of we what we personally do. Um, because like you said, I mean, in 2013 or 14, I think I did $30,000 in, in business. And in, in uh, 2015, I did close to $400,000. And I don't consider myself any larger than I was in 2014, especially since most of that went out in payroll and per diem anyway. <laughs> but, you know, from a financial standpoint, somebody would consider that being a slightly larger business. But I know that in reality, um, that's simply not true. Um, so, uh, I suppose yeah. there's a certain amount of flexibility in that then, you know, like right. you, you can grow or shrink, you know, depending on what the uh, current needs are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, because of that, I, I kind of, my personal judgment on what a large or small firm is and all the sliding scales in between is is one of really two things, because it depends on how you structure your business, is how many principal investigators do you have and or how many project managers do you have that are full-time on staff? Because the number of field techs you have will vary by project. You could get a, 
you could land a huge survey project and have to hire 20 people, but that doesn't really change the size of your firm. It changes the size of that project. But if you've got three or four project managers on staff, it means you're bringing in a lot of work and you're managing multiple projects. They're each managing multiple projects. That starts jacking up the size of the firm in my mind. And and yeah, like you're saying, Stephen, uh, how many specialists do you have? How many do you have a GIS department? I mean, you know, things like that. I mean, I contract out my, my heavy, heavy lifting GIS stuff. I do a lot of the small stuff myself, but, you know, I contract a lot of that out. So, um, you know, there's a, like we said, there's a sliding scale and now, and now you're getting up into as well. Let's start, let's start jacking it up from small mom and pop shops, um, to slightly larger firms that have offices and things like that. Um, we can also start throwing in universities. Um, you can start throwing in, uh, uh, cause some universities, I can think of two in particular, possibly three. I know there's a lot more, but just off the top of my head, there's, um, University of Massachusetts has their own CRM firm. Um, University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee has their own CRM firm. In fact, they just bought a large Midwest CRM firm to kind of bring all those people into the fold. And I think, I think Sonoma State has their own CRM firm. If not, they do a lot of stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, and you guys are you guys should just say these out loud. You guys are putting a lot in the chat. <laughs> so I'm trying to be He's polite. To... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. This too we've got we've done this for way too long to be polite at this point. <laughs> yeah, there there are quite a few universities and so the question is where do those where do those uh, fall in? Well, one example, you know, since working at uh, the University of Arizona, I don't I guess what we do is not necessarily called cultural resource management. However, that's pretty much what uh, I do on a like project by project basis. Mm-hmm. For example, right now I work for uh, my advisor works for the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology, and every now and then she gets contracts to do work for different Native American groups, the Park Service, and other organizations, and then we help with the project. She administers it. And then the uh, uh, the tribe or the um, government agency or whatever you know overviews our work. Almost every bit of it is stuff that I already learned how to do in CRM, mm-hmm. and um, a lot of it is uh, the same exact thing because we're fulfilling some kind of need for the agency or for the tribe or for uh, some kind of project that's going to happen. It's not the same as building a fiber optic line or expanding a freeway or whatever, but the core um, mechanics of what the projects are are basically cultural resource management type projects. Now, the university, and I'm not going to, I don't know how much, it's also on a project to project basis, takes a massive amount of overhead. <laughs> so when you, you know, if we talked in dollar amounts for these projects, they would they would probably be you know moderate uh, one-off uh, cultural resources projects you know they're thousands mm-hmm. of dollars I don't really actually know how much they are but added together it's you know millions of dollars of money that's coming into the university through this organization but I don't know how much Arizona is taking off the top and I can tell you it's a lot because mm-hmm. I know they take about half of all these you know. When you hear, congratulations, Professor So-and-so just got an NSF grant or they just got a new amazing grant from uh, NOAA to do research, the university takes like you know, 50 60% of that. Right. So these million-dollar research grants that go out from the government, a lot of that just goes straight into the university. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the overhead's super high, but as far as what we do at BARA, it's very similar to CRM. So I think you you somewhat proved my point because um, when we talk about the other segments here, like uh, we've got a on our second segment, we're talking about working within a small firm and then working within a large firm in the third segment. I think the, uh, working within those is mostly going to be determined by um, how many people work there, how many bosses do you have, how many uh, project managers and principal investigators are there, not necessarily what is the value of the projects that they're bringing in. Um, although sometimes that does correlate because it'd be hard for a, a one-person operation to bring in a million-dollar project uh, from a management standpoint. Not impossible, but more difficult. You know, it's, uh, yeah, full-time staff. Um, that's what we're talking about here. So you're right. While universities have probably really large um really large amount of money they're bringing in. They, they might have, you know, small staffs. I know the one at University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee has a fairly large staff. I mean, they have a lot of people working for them. But then again, you start bringing other things like university CRM departments can likely hire and probably do um, 
work study students, you know, not necessarily professional field technicians. They still have to probably follow the rules of um, state standards for certain projects, but there's probably a lot of stuff that they can have done in the office or things like that that are done by work study students getting minimum wage or less. And, uh, and, and that's, or free or free. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. Uh, You know, interns, things like that. Um, you know, because they play by a different set of rules being a university. Um, but that also doesn't mean that they're not, uh, that they're nonprofits either. I mean, they're obviously making a profit. And and I, I, well, I mean, yeah, but it's a different kind of profit, right? Because if your overhead is so enormous that you barely get enough to even pull off the project, yeah, then how much pro- you're not really making any profit, right? And, uh, the benefit is really the prestige of working for those organizations, but I'm not going to go into that whole thing. No, the question we should try to figure out that I don't know if anyone here knows is how are those university CRM departments structured so that they can actually function as a business. Uh, you know, right. for, uh, a while ago when you had Adrian Pretzelis on here from Sonoma State, he talked about how they built their own curation facility and they kind of used overhead from their projects to get it going. Mm-hmm. And then once it, it once it started uh, – uh, so I, from what I understand, they used project monies as the seed money to start the repository. And then since then, they've started to take in curation but they charge enough to make sure that there's some that always goes into a fund so that if the university tries to take away the funding, they can somehow survive. So that's the question I'd like to know for these uh, university CRM companies mm-hmm. or organ- branches. How are they structured so that the university doesn't just treat their income as university income? I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, my understanding is that the university does uh, treat their income as university income. But there's like a staging point where it gets held for a while, um, you know, in, in the uh, separate account. Um, but as far as building goes, there, I think there's a weird sort of like uh, separation where you have um, the university type jobs and then the commercial type jobs. And usually, um, you know, as part of like their accounting, they have to be very careful not to use um or like some people will only build towards um the commercial things and other people will only build towards uh the university things mm-hmm. and, and it has to do with like uh the non-competition issues with uh you know government employees right okay um well let's let's continue defining these we're going to get into some of these uh the intricacies of some of these firms here in the next couple segments but let's list off the the other sizes of firms that we know and the other types of crm firms that you can have um one of those and i can think of a couple here in reno local ones are environmental firms that have a uh have a cultural component to them um and what i mean by that is you know they might get a they might get a large project where they have to do an environmental impact statement and they need, they need biology, they need water quality, they need archaeology, um, maybe they need geology, maybe they need some other stuff, you know, but they have all those departments within or they contract that out. That's more of an environmental firm that just deal with these, um, these sorts of environmental issues. But then you take it a step higher and those can be, those can be really big, by the way, your environmental firms can be enormous. I was actually contracted by an environmental firm out on the East Coast that's massive to do cell towers here in California, Nevada, because they don't, they don't have anybody here. So, um, they're not a large in engineering firm, which we're going to talk about next. They're a large environmental firm. So the difference on the next level up is the, um, what you call A and E firms, architectural and environment, environmental firms, uh, architecture and engineering firms, I think is what the A and E actually stands for. And yeah. And, uh, these are your, your AMEC Foster Wheeler. And if anybody didn't know, AMEC, um, was bought by Foster Wheeler, another big, massive firm. So now they're like global dominating firm. I don't actually know who's bigger. Um, and then there's AECOM. There's, uh, you know, who bought URS, which was also a massive firm. Um, there's, uh, 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 you know, Stantec, Stephen's mentioning here. Um, there's there's a number of them. And they all have those sort of uh, uh, office space sounding names. <laughs> I think that's how you can tell. Um, you know, in a tech. <laughs> Uh, I guess we'll maybe mention how uh, I've never worked for one of those firms. I've always been the sub of those guys, but I wonder yeah. if you ever feel like you're in office space. I think yes. you do. Yeah, yes. I worked for I worked for AMEC on a project out in uh, up in Washington State, and 
I mean, you kind of do feel like that. I mean, just walking back through to the to the cultural offices, to the archaeology section, I mean, it's like a maze just to get back there. And you're going through all these cubicles and all these other offices, and it's a lot of... It's a lot of white shirts and ties. I mean, it looks like the 1980s in these firms, quite honestly. And it's uh, just... <laughs> I was going to say, is there a little bit of a Dolly Parton 9 to 5 uh, going <laughs> yeah. on? Or or is it just you no. guys in the parking lot punching a Xerox computer with your uh, bare hands? Listen, if the, if the firm has um, two or three... Um, cakes in the break room every week um, for people's birthdays and they have casual Fridays and they have a workout facility and they have, you know, you know, things like that coming in. They're a large firm. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's kind of the metric right there. I mean, because (laughs) my, my, my idea of having, you know, very few principal investigators or project managers doesn't actually work in that situation because the cultural department for a particular office may only have one principal investigator. They may only have, you know, one or two or three project managers, but they work for a company that has 50,000 employees. So, um, you know, that is a large firm because they have a lot of purchasing and, and buying power. But, but at the same time, um, the archaeology department, if, you, if you're talking about, you know, what the archaeologists have access to, sometimes has to function like a small firm. Right, but the thing is, they can't bid on those projects with a small business set aside of fifteen million dollars because the company they work for made fifty billion dollars last year. You know what I mean? Well, sure, so, but yeah, but the thinking about it in terms of like the quality of archaeology, right? Yeah, you're the right. Issues they're going to have to deal with are the equivalent of a small firm because right. they don't have the expertise pool to draw on. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that in the third segment when we talk about working within a large firm and what that actually means, because I think a few of us have actually done that, and uh, and we can give you some insights to that. But for now, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about working, with, getting a job at a small firm and then working within a small firm, because it's, it's a very different process than working with a large firm. So we'll be back in a second. in CRM, a weekly podcast. Ask CRM professionals eight simple questions. The first questions establish education, location, and experience. The last questions are a reflection of that experience, and the answers will surprise you. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash profiles. On that page, you can also request to be interviewed for the show. It only takes 20 minutes, and you don't need any special equipment. Let's get back to the show. All right, we're back, and now we're going to do a somewhat of a deep dive into working within, uh, working for and within a small CRM firm. Um, and this is uh, now when we say these sorts of things, um, when we get into the large firms, we're going to have a lot of other things to talk about. But with the small one, we almost always just mean archaeology. You know, CRM is a whole suite of things, but we almost always just mean archaeology when we talk about, especially a small firm, because that's that's often all they can handle unless they contract out some other stuff. Um, if they get like a, a NEPA project or something where they've got to, you know, contract a biologist or some other things, they might do that. But typically, you're talking about archaeology. So, Bill, you've uh, um, sort of wrote the book on getting a job in uh, in cultural resource management. What do you think some there are some unique characteristics to if you want to find a job at a small firm? What are some things that you need to keep in mind um, to, to do that, and, and how do you find these people? Well, uh, well, that's a pretty big question. Um, <laughs> first, first of all, based on our first section, I guess I've only worked for small cultural resources firms. I've worked for ones that had multiple branches in a whole bunch of other states, but I guarantee you they were all classified as small cultural resources firms unless they were an environmental company. So when it comes to cultural resources, all I know is small ones. The, the best thing about small firms is uh, they don't have – they don't usually have like super specialized individuals or if they do, that person is like overworked. So if they've got a you know archaeologist that's their GIS guy, that guy's probably overworked trying to do archaeology and GIS. If they have a zoo archaeologist, that person's probably overwhelmed when they have a zoo archaeology uh, component because they also have to do archaeology. So what's cool is you get to use – you can figure out a niche or a specialty or something that they don't necessarily do. And, you know, you can really position yourself well to uh, do that. So uh, in my case, doing uh, historical archaeology in the West, it was super um, uh, handy 
and also needed at most firms because almost everywhere I go, there's all these people who know a lot about prehistory. So there's a lot of people who know a lot about Hohokam. There's a lot of people who know about Northwest Coast or Plateau or Great Basin prehistory, but they wouldn't actually know how to look at a pile of trash and tell you what stuff's from the 50s, what stuff's from the 20s, and what stuff's from the 1800s. Or they wouldn't necessarily know how to look at a bottle base and figure out how old that is to within, you know, 10 or 20 years. So if you have one of those skill sets, you know, GIS or historical artifact analysis, or you can identify buildings or stuff like that, those are really handy tools to have. So the other thing about small companies is they're almost always looking for people and they almost never have the time to do the formal job search and, you know, by the time they make it to uh, shovel bums or something, or they're posting something on there, they've already went out and hired everybody they knew or asked everybody they knew if they were available for the project. So it's easier to keep in touch with smaller firms and be on a, a person to person basis and just kind of keep your name in their mind than it is a large company because larger companies, you have to go through the HR process and you have to go through you know, an online application process with smaller companies. It's kind of like just the boss saying you'll do, or, Hey, I really, <laughs> I really like you. Would you like to work for us? Yeah. You know, it's just a straight up process. There's, you don't necessarily have to have an amazing resume or all kinds of stuff because you've actually talked to this person on, uh, on the phone or met them at a, a local uh, conference or, you know, even just, uh, giving them some messages on Facebook, you know, uh, archeology span groups. So it's easier to connect with people in, in smaller companies. So uh, as far as getting hired, I, you know, you want to have some kind of skill set that they definitely need, and then keep in keep in contact because the projects come in phases. So, you know, they don't have anything for a long time. Then magically they got three contracts, and they need to find people to do the work. So, but well, let me let me add to that real quick because. Um, you know, I've got a I've got a real world example for uh, you know, for two things that you just said. Um, you know, the the projects I had last year, everybody I hired, I either personally knew and asked if they could be on the project, or um, it was only one degree of separation. Like somebody I hired knew somebody and vouched for them, and they hired them that way. Um, because because also one of the things that you're saying, you know, keep in contact with these people because projects, you know, come and go. I mean, small business owners are wearing lots of hats and you could send them an email once at the beginning of the field season that says, Hey, I'm available. Just keep it in contact. And then you have, you have a project that starts in July. I guarantee you, I'm not looking back through that email and I've already forgotten about you, right? Like I, I literally forgot about you and I'm, I'm trying to do the, the 19 steps it takes to get this project going. And one of those steps is hire people. And the, I want to think as little as possible about it. I want to devote as small amount of brain bandwidth to that problem that as I can, which sounds ridiculous because your entire project is based on the quality of the fieldwork that gets done. <laughs> but that's the reality of the situation is you just simply don't have the time to focus on it. Like somebody who has a hiring manager or somebody who, you know, they just give a job to say, here, hire a hundred people for this project. Then that's your job. You know, that's for a small business, that's not your job. Uh, it is your job, but so are 15 million other things. Yeah, and someone someone who's looking for a job, that's their number one concern, right? So they right. care a lot about finding a job. So you don't necessarily have to care about it because they care. And they're going to keep mm -hmm. you know contacting you and saying, hey, I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work. I'm ready to work. Yeah, uh, somebody, somebody who's keeping them – in, now, not to an annoying level, but somebody who's yeah. keeping active with me in in various ways. For me, it'd be social media. If I see you constantly posting or commenting on things, you're going to keep your name in my face without actively emailing me every week saying, "Do you have a job? Do you have a job? Do you have a job?" You know, things like that. So, not every week, but uh, when I was searching for a job, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone knows, but uh, for a, a while there, I was a janitor, and so after I was done cleaning toilets. I used to go to my laptop that I brought with me to work and I had an Excel sheet of companies and jobs and things that I had applied and where's that whole thing at, right? So some of the time when I was looking for a job, it wasn't like I was just writing resumes and spamming them out all, the whole time. Part of it was just calling people and saying, hey, I'm still willing to work. Another part of it was calling companies and saying, you know what? I sent a resume in like three or four weeks ago. Have you guys filled those positions or whatever? You know, because another thing, it's not like you're getting blown off when you send in a resume and then you don't hear anything back. Projects are like, you know, uh, hurry up and wait. 
So sometimes the thing doesn't actually go through. Oh yeah, you know what? We're not going to hire anyone till like October because the contract's not working or the client doesn't want to do it or X, Y, Z, right? So if you find that out, then you know, okay, October or September, I need to start calling them again if I, if I need a job. So mm-hmm. if you can, if you manage it, you know, you can have a lot of different balls in the air and then oh, just yeah. following through with the conversations, giving people calls, noting what you uh, hear about in either a notebook or an Excel folder or something like that. Just managing all that until you get a job. And then even after you get a job, especially if you're a tech, you still need to keep managing all that stuff to know what's going to come next. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's let's dig into this a little more. Um, Sonia, when you need people for work, I assume you're doing a similar thing to me. Have you ever actually put out a, a job advertisement on a job posting website? Or have you needed to do that yet? Uh, I have. Um, we... Uh, we used when I was working for the large multi-billion-dollar firm that I used to work for. Um, <laughs> we we actually uh, would use like shovel bums. Um, recently, I put out a call for um, for just on-call field technicians um, because we received uh, two IDIQs, um, which basically means you can get jobs as long as you're the low bidder. You can get mm-hmm. you can get yeah. jobs pretty much anytime, anywhere, and for any number of acres. So um, basically, uh, I have, um, and the and the basic thing is, is um, when you're working for a large corporation, you may have a little bit of time because you have that that uh, HR department. Mm-hmm. But when you're a small business like I am now, um, I just need names. I need names and qualifications. I can't tell you if I'm going to need ten field technicians and one field director, or if I'm just going to need three field directors and three field technicians. Mm -hmm. So when I say like on call, uh, pay ranges can range. Um, uh, I I basically put out a call. Just say, send me your resume. I need to get this on file. Um, If you're available, let me know what your availability is. Um, And uh, I mean, going through um, paid services has, especially if you're in a huge hurry, Mm-hmm. Kind of takes a little bit of time because then you're preparing something a little more formal. Right. Um, putting out a call and saying, "Okay, we've got this pool. I'm just going to start going through," or I, in this case, hand that stack of resumes off to one of my field directors and say, "Tell me who you'd like to work with." Yeah. Uh, or who's most qualified for the following jobs, and then give them a call. Or, or you know, more likely, who have, who of these have you heard of, and which ones should I throw in the trash right now? Because that also exactly, happens. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Who should I? Yeah. Who do I need to round file? I mean, I've received. I have quite literally received resumes from people who've gotten a degree in anthropology like ten years ago and has been have been working as a, a receptionist since yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm and I go. Huh. Which which kudos to them for wanting <laughs> to get back into archaeology, but they've got to do a yeah. little more legwork to to build their skill set up. And I'm, you yeah. know, that's something we could talk about on another show. But you know, they can't just expect or, to get a job with a small firm like that. Yeah. Or they they may not need to do anything to keep their skill set up. They may need to just call Sonia and say, "Yo, I'm ready to do work. Yeah. This is what happened mm-hmm. in my life. I had you know a kid. I had a divorce. I had some mm-hmm. kind of something go on. I used to do this." Just give me a chance. I'm willing to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Then, magic, then magically their file goes from the anonymous folder to the actual like, okay, well, we don't have anything now, but when we do have something, we'll put you on the, list. the list. Or, yeah, you know, yes. Mm-hmm. I, one of the things that I'd like to remind everybody is when you see, you know, on-call field announcements just in general, whether they be from Shovel Bums or – uh, from my business or from Chris's business or from any other business, keep in mind what you're saying mm-hmm. on your social media or in your comment section because many times the owners and the hiring <laughs> staff of these companies are watching. Yeah. And, you know, they may not know. I mean, because they've put out a call for on-call field staff or a specific job, they may not actually know how much you're going to get paid because, say, it's a wage determination project. So in one state, it could be like $18 an hour, and in another state, it could be $16 an hour. Yeah. You know, who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's – um, it, it, and, and um, it, it, things, things change, and uh, it, it's just keep in mind what you're saying <laughs> mm-hmm. is often watched and seen. I mean, I, I've looked at, at uh, comments 
um, on even shovel bums or um, or uh, on uh, the Facebook, field tech Facebook. forums. Yeah. And just said, "Wow." Oh, wow. I hear you. I hear you. It it doesn't it doesn't give me a lot of. I don't, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but if I if I'm looking for people for a job, I'm, I'm probably going to post that in the Archeo Field Techs group in Facebook because there are a lot of really good people there. But if one of those one of those common people um, that constantly comment on this stuff and they're they're 100 negative like all the time, and they're like screw CRM and and I don't ever make any money and blah 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 blah, or or they've ever commented on one of Bill's posts. That's also a, a thing well, that will get you. Say, uh, or, yeah. Or if it's just me, like oh, if it's yeah. just this loudmouth guy that's always getting people to fight on there, then yeah, he's done. Yeah. So but, for like future commenting on Bill's post. So. <laughs> nice. Well, if you. I'll tell you what, if you've ever commented on one of Bill's posts, then you'll probably have a flag going up for me. So I'm going to have to dig it a little deeper into it. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway. I was going to say, I'm in trouble, man. I need all the flags I can get. I know. I know. But that is the thing. Like you were saying, Sonia, if, if, if you constantly see somebody and they're always negative and then you post a job and they're like, hey, can I work for you? I, I like your firm. And even if they're nice at that point, it's like, well why what are you going to say about me when this job is over you know what i mean mm-hmm. um what are you what are you going to what kind of an influence are you going to be on the other employees are you going to bring everybody down are you going to you know stuff like that so um because to me these people often don't have the big picture and they're not going to get yep. it working for me either probably so you I know i go out of my way to try to train people while i'm in the field not just in the archaeology but also on how business works yeah like i want them to know that I am up literally from 6 a.m. or earlier till after midnight every single night trying to manage projects, get proposals out, organize the field, uh, the field notes or photographs. You know, I, as, a, as a business owner, I'm, I'm not so uh, separated from the field work as you might think that I am. Well, and that's we're going to move into that in the last six minutes of this segment is working within a small firm. Um, now that you've got the job, let's say you've got a job with a small firm and you're working within that small firm, there there are some things that uh, that you need to take into consideration. Like like for example, if you're new, working in a small firm might be actually um, what. You might have a difficult job getting a job in a small firm because they are looking for people that can wear multiple hats often, you know, that have all these skills. On the other hand, they might be work looking for people that are also cheap because they, they may have bid low on a project or something like that. So who knows? I'm not saying you won't get the job, but either way, um, once you do get the job, um, I would say often if, you're, if your goal is to move up in the business, is to move up to project manager, move up to stuff like that, it could actually be kind of difficult in a smaller firm just because they have very few positions and very few, uh, very little mobility. Unless that firm is rapidly expanding, then, um, you know, you might be able to to work yourself into a spot where all of a sudden they need a project manager two states away and you have experience over there. So maybe they'll send you over there. And now you're now you're managing the office of, you know, uh, for dig tech in Idaho, you know. So, um, Sonia, you've got some some experience with this. What's your What's your ideas on that? If you want to move up in a small business, you're going to have to make sure that you are a valuable member of the of the business. That means supporting yeah. other team members, and that's what you are. You're a team. Um, supporting other team members, encouraging them to learn, but but also you need to have several different marketable skills. If you have a PhD in anthropology, a master's degree in anthropology, and a bachelor's degree in anthropology, and you only know prehistoric Great Basin archaeology. Right. You're going to need to branch out. Um, you're going to need to learn GIS. You need to learn how to market. You need to learn how to maybe, um, I don't know, a prairie dog monitor or <laughs> learn the different types of hawks that are out there. You know, just there are a lot of different skills that you can learn as an archaeologist and, and be basically cross-trained. Mm-hmm. So start volunteering for that stuff. You know, and I would say the exact same thing if you were working for a large firm. Start expanding your uh, repertoire, your knowledge repertoire. Um, make yourself more valuable that way. Yeah, that never hurts. It never yeah. hurts yeah. because small companies are limited by the number and uh, the number and the quality of their field staff. And the the individuals have the who have the most or the largest set of skills or the broadest set of skills become a higher priority. Yeah. And the biggest difference I could see between a small and large firm from a skill set standpoint is at a large firm, at a small firm, your skills will will be um, 
extremely visible. Like what you know and don't know will be known by everyone. And if you if you learn something new or, you know, I've got in the notes here to be a self-starter, if you guys, if you if you know that your firm is bringing in a project and, and a small firm, you might actually know what's being bid on and it might be discussed with your, um, you know, your employer because they're working in the trench next to you. Um, exactly. Yeah. Every single one of my crew <laughs> know what we're bidding on. Right. Because I want them to know. Exactly. Um, that it, that shows them um, uh, that we're trying to keep work coming in for them, but mm-hmm. it also gives them an opportunity to say, "Hey, you know what? I have a little bit of experience in that. Can I help exactly. you?" Exactly, exactly. You know, and if you and if nobody has experience in that, and your employer really wants to bid on something, you say, "Hey, I'm going to look into that, so we can add that to our list of skills because you want to you want to stay there and you want to stay relevant." Now, working in a larger firm, your skill set you could you could have a, a more narrowly focused set of skills. I was just talking to a guy at the SAAs who works for um, a large firm out in uh, one of their bigger offices out in, I think it's New Jersey. And uh, they have 150 archaeologists at that firm. Not like employees, like just archaeologists in the cultural department. And in a firm like that, you could have a very specific set of skills and probably not ever get noticed. And you you could always go on historic projects. You could always focus on prehistoric projects or, you know, something like that. So... It, but that's a that's a completely different deal that we'll get into in a minute. Um, but the basics here, as we start to wrap up this section, are with a small firm, you're going to be intimately acquainted with the owners, which could be good um, depending on who they are. If they're if they're good educators and they're interested in teaching things, you can learn a lot. You can learn a lot about the business of archaeology because the the basic structure of how an archaeological project works is going to be really similar between these two sizes of firms, unless you get up into the big, massive military contracts and government contracts and stuff like that. But yeah, and, and one thing Sonia's saying here is you have to be teachable. You have to learn how to do new things. You have to um, you know, just stay, stay up on all this stuff, and you're going to be a lot more active. You're not going to be able to, in most cases, just go to work from nine to five and keep your head down and do stuff. You're going to be active and engaged and you're going to be, um, you know, part of that company. And, and from my own standpoint, you know, you have to keep in mind that the work you're doing is, you know, your employer, because they're working right next to you, they're walking next to you, they're digging next to you, they're screening for you, they're doing something. Everything you do, they're going to kind of take it personally. They're not going to try to do that, but they are going to take it personally. So if you're standing there, you know, bad mouth in the company or doing something like that, you're bad mouthing that person, you know, but at the same time, if you're, if you're online saying, you know, I work for this awesome company, they're amazing. They're also in that group too. And they're seeing that. So, um, it's just a, a way more, um, intimate setting, intimate setting. So Stephen, why don't you take us out with your, uh, with your, with your comment in the Skype chat? Well, yeah, one of the, I don't know if it's a benefit or a downside of uh, working for a small firm, but because there are only, you know, it's like you and maybe one other person um, with um, any sort of expertise is that if something comes down the pipe that nobody has an expertise in, Mm -hmm. you basically have to roll your own. Um, So one thing that, you know, not only do you have to be teachable, but you have to be self-teachable. You have to be able to, you know, know how to figure things out and and come up with a workable solution mm-hmm. and and so it's um and I, w- I would contrast it against large firms where you know you get exposed to a lot of different types of depth for you know your various subjects matter um and, and so you can learn a lot that way but in the smaller firms your your learning is is going to be more like you know a scramble of how, how do we get that out of the way how do we get it done so the the easiest way that I ever realized, only after I'd been laid off and fired a million times, how to survive in a small firm is really it's like a pirate ship. You guys are all <laughs> in it together, and the plunder that you get is what you get. And yeah. so if you are not adding value, which I have been absolutely guilty of not adding value to my company's uh, bottom line, so by you not adding uh, money to the bottom line or – bad-mouthing people or not giving your 110% by not doing what Stephen recommended and learning more about other things that you don't necessarily know about, you are basically not helping the crew. And when you don't get helped on, you know, when you don't help, you basically end up getting mutinied. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is real. That's happened to me, I, I know, from experience. Absolutely. All right. So we are going to move on to large firms right after this break. Back in a second.
everyone. This is Christopher Dorr with Heritage Business International, and here's this week's Heritage Business Tip from the Archive. This week, we look at the relationship between value and price. In the minds of your clients, value equals price. To balance this equation, most heritage organizations focus on reducing price. That becomes a race to the bottom. Instead, focus on increasing value to justify your price. The things you will need to do will make your organization stronger, more sustainable, and much more profitable. To receive our most up-to-date Heritage Business tips, you can subscribe to our free weekly email at heritagebusiness.org. Until next time, this is Christopher Dorr. All right, we're back, and we're going to close out the show by talking about large CRM firms. And um, Bill had to step out of the room for a second, so he's going to come in and take over uh, where we leave off. But like we did with small CRM firms, let's talk about uh, getting a job within a large CRM firm because there are uh, there are differences between doing a small firm. Now, with a small firm, we mentioned just to just to recap, you know, you've got to um, you know make yourself known to the firm. You've got to um, you know it's 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 kind of all about who you know. And uh, and things like that, but um, uh, Sonia, if you've got to come in this, you can you can kick in anytime. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just go ahead. Uh, getting hired with a large firm can be exceptionally complicated and, and in many cases uh, very detached. Like you'll fill out your application online, and there won't be a telephone number to an HR person. <laughs> there won't be any email to an HR person. There is literally nobody you can follow up with, and these are on, on some of the larger firms. Um, when you're at a higher level, like a management level, um, you may uh, it, they may approach you because they use headhunters mm-hmm. to find people um, for basic. I mean, for for basically for fields field crew crew chiefs, either you have to know someone, mm-hmm. or you basically have to put your put your name in, get onto an on call list, and then hope that they call you. Right. It's it's a it's kind of a it's kind of a challenge sometimes to get in with these larger firms. Well, yeah. And there are some things that Bill has written about um, that you need to think about too, with some of these large firms, like the really large, you know, architectural and engineering firms that, that, uh, that like you said, they might actually use an outside firm to do this, or they might have software that helps them weed out the initial set of resumes. Cause these firms are going to get, you know, sometimes hundreds, if not possibly even thousands of applications for a single job. Right. So, one of the things Bill talks about in um, in a couple of his books are uh, crafting your resume or CV or whatever they ask for. That's also a big thing is look at what they ask for in the job listing and give them exactly mm-hmm. that. Because if you don't give them exactly that, you're instantly tossed into the round file. Um, and, and now that Bill's back, we're just getting into this job thing. Um, one of the things Bill has talked about is... Uh, you know, crafting the words that are on your resume and CV to sort of match what's in the job listing because they could run your information through a program that is going to try to pick out those keywords, and then you'll instantly be pushed to the pushed to the top of the list because you added those keywords and you added exactly what they were looking for. You know, if they say we need a person to do this, this, and this, then you better put this, this, and this on your resume. Otherwise, you're not going to get the job. <laughs> so um, you have to look at. The, the, the biggest difference I see with getting a job in a small and a large firm is is the exposure that they have. When a small firm puts out a job posting, you know, they're they're probably putting on one of the two common places that we do that, and they're going to get a handful of people, you know, that, that want to do that job. And it might be a smaller job. It might not pay as much, things like that. There might not be any benefits, whereas a large firm will will often pay more. They'll often have longer, you know, better benefits. There's, there's, us- there's often you know, the ability to do further work with them. So they're going to be a little more particular on who they hire, which means they're going to get more people that want to work on that job. So, um, Bill, we've just kind of gotten into this. Why don't you take this up and talk about some of the stuff you've mentioned, um, you know, about some of the intricacies of getting a job with a larger firm and, you know, who you need to contact and, and what, what do you need to do and, and things like that? Sure. 
getting hired at a large firm is very similar to getting hired at a small firm. However, there's a lot more firewalls and, and uh, obstacles to actually connecting with the individuals who have the power to hire you. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned earlier, I mean, the goal is for you to connect with the individual that might be your boss or your coworkers in a way that makes you look good, right? Right. So <clears throat> at a larger company, I think you were mentioning before, that it might be a massive corporation, but there's only really one principal investigator and a small group of individuals that do cultural resources. Well, you can connect with those guys and they may totally love you. But then you have to go through the whole HR and all the other stuff. And so um, there's there's just a lot of pitfalls. You know, It, it could take a long time to get hired, and then at that point uh, the project's done or it's a moot point or you're actually redundant, which then that pretty much sets you up to get laid off pretty soon or mm-hmm. for the job to not – You know, you've missed your chance to prove who you are. Now you've got to sit there and prove who you are with nothing to prove or you know, with no projects to help you do so. Or um, – you may be the most personable individual who knows about what's going on in that area or uh, in the place where they're where the corporation's trying to expand or you know you might be the perfect candidate but you can't write a quality resume or uh, you know you don't have X certifications like uh, an MSHA training or some kind of other special training or you know you can't pass a drug test. And then, you know, it doesn't really matter. You've done all that work. You've shown that you're a great person. But then these other things actually show that you're maybe not as good as you possibly could be. So, um, you know, you still want to connect with people and you still want to try to make a a personable impression. But you should just be aware that there's going to be other obstacles and there's other people that you're going to have to uh, uh, appease. And, yeah, writing an excellent resume that is loaded with keywords, that is exactly what the – company needs and then with that little personal touch because you've done your networking and you know the people who work there that shows how you can add even more value how you can go beyond that right so you've got this extra skill that's not necessarily called for in the job posting but you know it's a direction the company wants to go it's somewhere that you want to be and you can try to put that in that'll get you past the other uh, applicants and i don't i i haven't worked with you know really huge corporations but i do know that you know, if you if you're if you're trying to hire for a project that's three six months long, and you need eight or nine people of all different levels, you know, crew chief, uh, tech, maybe even some project directors, you can be assured that there's going to be an applicant pool way over a hundred for that job. Yeah. And depending on how widely they've advertised it, if they're totally crazy, or if they actually have people who do the hiring, you could be in there with you know. A hundred people for those like four or five tech <laughs> jobs, right? And so in that case, it's really like you guys were saying, who do you know? So even if it formally goes through the corporation's process for hiring, when it comes down to it, the people who are uh, um, doing the hiring are going to do their best to try and choose individuals that they actually know, regardless of what the uh, what the uh, what your resume says to a certain point. So. Um, uh, yeah, you, the the competition could be a lot more fierce. Whereas if they mm-hmm. just know you or Sonia, then you know you, you probably pass the test, right? They they know <laughs> who you are. You're more likely to get hired at a big company. You could uh, you know be in an applicant pool with a million other people, and then your boss is trying to say, well, I really know her. I like her. Hire mm-hmm. her. But they're saying, well, there's all these other people over here on this side, and there's several masters and PhDs down here. Are you sure you don't want to look at them? And it's like. Okay, I guess we'll uh, I guess we'll look at them too, and then come <laughs> to find out one of those people is is excellent too, and you know they get hired. Indeed, yeah, and that's and that's all good points. And you know, one of the things we're talking about here is you, you can have um, there there are some similarities, like you mentioned, Bill, uh, and one of those is making yourself more marketable. Um, you know, a small firm. A small firm is going to, you know, look at how many skills you have and, and whether or not you're actually good at those things. But a large firm is going to look at the same thing too, depending on the job that you're looking for. Um, uh, one of the things we're mentioning here, if you're looking for just field tech on a on a project for them, um, I think uh, at least a few of us have worked with larger firms. I, I can think of, I think I can think of two or three projects I was on where the only people I actually knew on that project were the two or three people I was actually 
you know, on a crew, on a survey crew with, or on an excavation crew with, but there were 30 other people that I don't even remember their names or what they look like. You know, I mean, they just, it was such a large project that I had no idea. And I didn't know, I never met anybody that worked in the, the home office, you know, or I just work, you know, you'd work with the project manager and then you'd never even see the home office. I've worked for a number of companies where I've never actually been to their offices and I didn't know who was there. I've never met the owner never met anybody in the in the upper echelons of that company unless they maybe visited the site which is also very unlikely um so you can you can like we said you can't do with a small firm you can in a large firm just kind of put your head down and work and probably never get noticed if you don't want to get noticed so sonia um uh, you know one of the things that i found most frustrating about working for a large firm is that um, they they do as as Stephen has mentioned in the in the notes here. Uh, they try to kind of put you into a box, and uh, um, that you have a hard time climbing out of that box. Mm-hmm. At one point, we were putting in a cost uh, proposal for a project, and they're like, "Oh crap, we need a paleontologist." And I'm like, "Well, I can do that for you." And they're like, "Well, you're not a paleontologist; you're just an archaeologist." And I'm like, "I have a degree in geology." I have a master's degree that's specialized in geomorphology. I am a permitted paleontologist in addition to being a permitted archaeologist. Mm-hmm. I can do that work. Well, but you're just an archaeologist. I, <laughs> I'm going, well, okay, so what, what other than does this mean that you want to just hire another person? I mean, legally speaking, I can't perform both tasks at the same time. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is walk a transect for archaeology and walk a transect, that same transect again, for paleontology. Right. That's separating the two tasks. So I, I, I'm like, why, why hire another person? Probably pay them more because they have a degree in archaeology or in geology instead of archaeology. Um, when you can have one person do the same job equally as well, but separately, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they, they really had a hard time separating the fact out that I, I was, that, that I, w- I could do both, both jobs. And, um, you know, I, I, I do encourage people to diversify their skill set. Make sure that your bosses know that you can do other jobs other than just that one checked box that you have of yeah. archaeologist, you know, and, and Keep that in front of them. That's a good, that's an excellent point right there. Is keep that in front of them because while you think you're the most fantastic person on the planet, um, and maybe you are, uh, these people also don't have time to memorize your CV. They'll look at it maybe once. They'll they'll yep. skim it. They'll skim it. You look at your first page if you did your CV right and get a snapshot of who you are, and then they'll flip through the other pages and be like, okay, 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 okay. But they're not memorizing all that. You know, they're putting you in the pile of people they want to talk to. And they'll talk to you and they'll never look at your CV again. So if you don't constantly remind someone whenever something comes up, and this is how I've kind of moved up is, is when something presents itself at a firm, somebody says, ah, crap, we need to use a total station. Does anybody here know how to do that? I mean, I speak up. Yes, I know how to use a total station. I've used one before. Or no, but give it to me for the weekend and I'll figure it out. I also did that one time <laughs> because nobody was, nobody was willing to do that. And, uh, you know, it, and you just have to speak up, and then you'll get noticed. And the more you speak up, even if they don't pick you for that position, or even if they don't pick you to learn something new, um, or pick one of the skills you have, you spoke up, and you're not one of the faceless people standing in front of them at the tailgate meeting when there's 20 of you, and nobody knows who you are. So if you, now on the other hand, if you want to be a faceless person at a company and just do your job and get paid for it and go home at the end of the day and not really think about it, then a large firm is probably the exact place you need to be because you'll be one of those 150 archaeologists that just shows up to work every day. And some people like that, you know, some people, some people get into that, but if you want to, if you want to move up or at least get noticed and do different things and, and maybe be called upon to, um, Oh, the firm just got a job in Hawaii. We want to go work out there. Um, which, you know, to get into a side conversation sounds good, but actually it's pretty crappy because working in Hawaii is not the best thing in the world. But anyway, you know, you might be called upon to do one of those special jobs. Um, here's another example. I, I have a friend who works down in the Southeast, speaks fluent Spanish. So he gets called upon to do the work that they have occasionally in Puerto Rico. Even if he's not going as an archaeologist, he's going almost as a translator because he speaks fluent Spanish. And that's a skill that, that they know that he has. So, um, 
I don't know. What are some, uh, you know, what are some other things you guys can think of here? Um, I, I know just jump in. Cause I know one of the things I'm thinking of at a large firm, you might have other opportunities that you wouldn't have at small firms. Like for example, the SAA is coming up in Vancouver next year. The Great Basin Anthropological Conference coming up in October. They might pay for you to go if you're giving a paper. They might pay for you to go if you're not giving a paper. Chances are they won't. But if you are giving a presentation on some of the research you've done, that's good advertising for them. It's good science for them. They like that. Um, and they might actually pay your way. And then you'll get one of those coveted government rate rooms maybe or or you know one of the one of the conference hotel rooms i always stay somewhere else because they're 200 dollars a night but um you know they could actually do that and it could be a good thing for you to do um smaller firms might not be able to afford that i mean the ones who know it's good for them will try to afford that but they might not be able to well you might gear right that you know like the newest bestest gear um you know like the large firms that you know particularly aren't just archaeology firms, but you know the AME firms or whatever, they probably already have digital data loggers for other for other departments. So mm-hmm. um, it might be an easy sell to since they already have the infrastructure there to just kind of glom on and and uh, work with them. That's not true of every place. And, and some some of the large AME firms, like the departments, are really compartmentalized. So, um, but. You know, I, I think one of the biggest selling points of, of working for a large firm and whether it's a, I guess, technically medium-sized firm that's, you know, would be large, but solely archaeology where you have a lot of permanent staff or, you know, some, uh, you know attached to one of these that you need firms or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it, it's opportunity that right. they can provide you with, you know, you have five other um, people who have specialties there and you'll be able to learn these things to a greater depth than you would if you were just trying to roll your own. Right. Um, you have access to, you know, potentially access to, you know, better toys and, and whatnot, you know, the most cutting edge technology and, and uh, different approaches. Also, also, you know, not necessarily on an individual level, but there's a good chance that you can hook on with, you know, a larger project provided that it's it's something that the rest of your firm got. So if, if mm-hmm. like, you know, your A&E firm got a really big engineering project, you might be able to get in on that, you know, as, as, as the, ar- the archaeology are. Um, right. And so that, that can offer, you know, really good opportunities as well. One thing, one thing I can think of is you might be able to roll over into another position after you decide that you hate CRM because they are so huge. <laughs> That's a good point. So, you know, uh, not because you do have a degree and you would have experience with the company, maybe you could figure out the, the way something works that would help you out. Like maybe you could do HR work. Maybe you could uh, do some of the more technical work like uh, managing those data sets or you know, do something for multiple departments. If you're just done with being in the field, uh, a big corporation might give you a chance to do something else that you, you know, you, you wouldn't have to actually hack your way in from the outside. You'd actually be in the organization and you could maybe, you know, maneuver your way to another department. Yeah, that's an, I hadn't even actually thought about that, Bill. That's, that's fantastic. And I, I have a, an actual example of that going the other direction on one of the big projects I worked for, for, probably one of the largest A&E firms in the, in the, in the world. Um, we had a, a relatively good sized project and they were having somewhat of a difficult time finding some field techs. It was winter time. Um, and I, I don't even understand what the deal was there, but anyway, some of their um, people from their bio department had no work to do uh, in the winter. And these guys were techs for the biology department and they came out and um, were running buckets back and forth and doing a little bit of screening and things like that. So, well, they don't necessarily advocate that because they really need to know what they're looking for. Um, that is a way to to work. And some of their some of the archaeologists also, you know, cross cross populated into the other departments as well. And so you get to um, and don't forget to put that stuff on your CV. You know, that's that's good experience to get uh, because that that adds that other hat to your uh, you know to your skill set. But um, and like like Sonia said, you know, she uh, you know she does a lot of paleontology stuff. So you know, she's got that skill set and she lets people know that. Um, well, we are, uh, we are wrapping up here. I think, I think the, the two biggest things that we've, that we've recognized here is with a small firm, it's a more intimate setting. Um, you might actually learn more without actually trying hard because you're, you're just intimately involved with the entire process. 
Whereas with a large firm, you're going to have to be a lot more proactive at learning more. You're going to have to be proactive at um, demonstrating your skill set and letting people know who you are um, because you're going to be a, a faceless cog in the machine if you don't do that. So um, anyway, we've we've covered a lot of stuff in here. And uh, if you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to send it to any one of us. Most of our contact info is in the show notes for the page um, on the Archaeology Podcast Network page archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash podcast forward slash 83 and you can find the show notes so anyway we're going to call it right there and uh, we'll be back next time with uh, some even more uh, fantastic topics thanks a lot that's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast if you like the show and want to comment please do you can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode you can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage if you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode email us use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMARCpodcast or you can tag at ARCpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.